You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. All right, church. Well, open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture this morning, it's gonna, you're going to find it on page 961 in the Pew Bible that's right in front of you, page 961. So please turn there. You know, several years ago, there was a movie that was released called 1917. And the film's synopsis is as follows. It says, during World War I, two British soldiers, Lance Corporal Schofield and Lance Corporal Blake, received seemingly impossible orders. In a race against time, they were tasked to deliver an urgent message that could potentially save 1,600 of their fellow comrades, including Blake's own brother. You see, the British battalion were convinced that they had the Germans on the run. And they were advancing toward them, prepared to attack. However, new aerial schematics showed that the British were actually walking into an ambush. And so it was up to these two soldiers to get this critically important message to the British battalion before it was too late. One general warned, if you fail, it will be a massacre. No pressure, right? Of course, getting the crucial message to their colonel was only half the battle. Because, look, they weren't living in a time of social media and Twitter and all this kind of stuff. And so assuming they got the message to him on time, the colonel would still have an important choice to make. He could choose to trust in someone else's judgment, believe the message, and change course. Or he could choose to trust in his own judgment, disregard the message, and stay the course. Simply put, what he chose to believe about the message was literally the difference between life and death. And church, I share this with you because the parallels between the British battalion's predicament and man's spiritual condition are noteworthy. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You see, just like the British battalion, there are many people in our world today, maybe you're one of them, who are certain they have life all figured out. They're convinced that they're going the right way. They're confident that they're following the right path. However, the truth is, these people are greatly deceived by the enemy. In fact, they're walking into a spiritual ambush and they don't even know it. And unless they change course, its end is the way to death. And it's for this reason... And we just, man, every song we sang this morning touches base on it. It's for this reason that God provided a life-saving message for anyone who's willing to receive it and believe it. And this life-saving message is called the gospel, which simply means good news. You see, the good news is that Jesus provides a way for all of us to be saved from our spiritual enemy. He provides a way to avoid that spiritual ambush. He provides a way to receive eternal life. And so this morning, as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians, we're going to revisit the timeless, life-changing message of the gospel. And in doing so, we're going to be reminded why it's the most important message ever and why we as followers of Christ should do everything in our power to deliver the message to anyone who's willing to listen. Does that sound like a plan? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and the opportunity to hop back into your word. And I thank you that this passage 
Lord, is a great reminder to all of us of the, of the timeless, life-changing truth of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that I would get out of your way, that you would allow the gospel to become real in our lives once again this morning. And God, that you would, you would work in our hearts in such a way where we leave here changed. And just like those, those corporals, Lord, who, who desperately needed to get a message out there before it was too late, God, help us to have that same attitude when we leave here today. But God, whatever work it is you want to do, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump into today's text, let me kind of just provide a little bit of context. Man, we're almost done with 1 Corinthians. 5, 1 Corinthians. Isn't that crazy? We've been in 1 Corinthians for quite a while, but we still have a few more weeks left. Um, really, probably another month left. But So here's, here's where we're at. The Apostle Paul is entering into the final stretch of his letter. And as you recall, the purpose for writing his letter was to address the problems within the church, specifically the problems of worldliness and sin that had entered the church. You see, instead of having a positive influence on the culture, the Corinthian believers were actually being influenced by the culture. And as a result, the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, looked not much different than the ones that they've been called out from. David Platt summed it up this way. The problem was not that the church... Not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much Corinth was in the church. And so up to this point, uh, we've seen Paul address problems related uh, to their attitudes and actions toward one another. In other words, their deeds. Well, today, in today's text, we're going to find Paul addressing problems related to their doctrine. You see, the, the city of Corinth was a, was a Greek city. And Greeks, by and large, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well, evidently, this pagan thinking began to influence the church's thinking. So much so that born-again believers were starting to question the validity of Christ's resurrection, which is kind of a critical component to the gospel. And so, once again, Paul set out to correct their faulty thinking. So let's begin. We'll read the whole passage, <coughs> excuse me, and then we'll break it down. Follow along with me. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one, to one who was untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You know, church, many of you will remember that earlier this year, a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. 38 of its 150 cars came off the track in this village of 4,700 residents. And then after the derailment, a large fire ensued and toxic chemicals were released into the air and residents were told to evacuate. You guys remember this? Now, it's been nine months since the wreck and residents still continue to complain about the negative impact it's had over their overall health and well-being. It, it was a big deal and, and still is. 
And, and what this teaches us, and what every train derailment teaches us, is that trains are designed to stay on the tracks, yes? The moment when they get off the tracks, it creates a hot mess. Well, I'd argue the same principle applies, the same basic principle applies to the church. As a church, the only way for us to be effective is to stay on the right track. And when a church gets off track, it creates a hot mess. There are a lot of churches in the world that look like this, spiritually speaking. Friends, when Paul wrote this letter, the Corinthian church was a hot mess. And they, they were completely derailed because they got off track with their doctrine. Someone once said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, when it comes to good doctrine, the main thing is the gospel message. Somewhere along the lines, the Corinthian believers started undermining the very gospel that saved them, which is why Paul was compelled to take them back to the main thing. And so I've broken down today's passage into just two important realities. Uh, let's begin by looking at the first. Number one, the gospel saves lives. The gospel saves lives. Let's look again at verses one and two. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You know, church, if you ask me, one of life's greatest inventions of all time is Google Reminders. You know what I'm saying? Those of you that use it often, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you have the ability to create reminders on your phone. For example, my phone uh, is programmed to remind me about birthdays, even like a week in advance, not just the day of, right? Like, hey, birthday's coming up, you better go shopping, right? Birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, meetings, tasks, and a host of other things. In fact, I've come, become so reliant upon these reminders that it's, I shudder to think what my life would look like without these reminders. I wouldn't get anything done. I'd miss all the important things. Well, in the same way as believers, we need regular reminders of life's most important message. We need regular reminders of the gospel. Why? Because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget. In fact, just last week, I forgot to share the gospel at a teen retreat that I was speaking at. I couldn't believe it. And it, it, was, it was part of my plan to share the gospel. And so my message was about like how we should reach the lost for Christ, right? That was actually my message. And so, um, so after I got done, I felt like I was going a little long and whatever, but after I got done, uh, I, I had the teens, they were working on some kind of like response time and I had like shoved off to the side for a second. And my wife, Carrie, comes up to me, which, by the way, behind every man and to the side of every man is always a good woman, and that's, that's my wife for sure. And, and she says, Mike, aren't you going to share the gospel? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, how did, what? Like, I, I could not believe that I forgot to share the gospel. I'm like, yes, I'm going to share the gospel. And I'm glad she reminded me, and I'm glad that I did, because you know what? Someone came to faith in Christ as a result of me sharing the gospel. So God be the glory, but to Carrie be whatever get Carrie gets as well, because... Uh, <laughs> But friends, Martin Luther said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. The Corinthian believers forgot about the gospel. And so Paul began reminding them of the good news they once received, believed, and found their standing. Now that word stand means to establish or to hold up. You know, the world's tallest building rests on a foundation that's almost 164 feet underground. But without this firm foundation, the building would be unstable and would eventually collapse. The same is true with the church. In essence, Paul was reminding the Corinthian believers that the gospel is the very foundation that holds them up. 
And if they desire to stay up, then they needed to hold fast to its message. You know, friends, when we look at the state of our world today, when we look at all the pervasiveness of evil and the outright rejection of God in our society, it's easy to get anxious, angry, and afraid, isn't it? However, if we, as the church, as God's people, make a conscious decision to hold fast to the gospel message, we're going to be able to stand tall even if our world falls. Why do I say that? Why, why, why do I think that's true? Look at Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And I'm not just talking about gospel-saving faith. I'm talking about as a believer, your faith is strengthened when you preach God's word to yourself, when you preach the gospel to yourself. It's for this reason Pastor Colin Smith said this, Every day, you have to reset your soul to embrace, believe, live on, and rejoice in all that Jesus Christ has done for you. Tell yourself who you are in Christ. Tell yourself what Christ has done for you on the cross. Tell yourself how he's with you now. Tell yourself what lies ahead of you. Tell yourself that your life is in the Redeemer's hands. So all this to say, as far as it depends on us, listen, we must never forget the gospel. We must never grow weary of the gospel. We must never get bored with the gospel. We must never check out with the gospel. We must never downplay the gospel. Instead, we must do everything we can in our power to uphold and hold fast to the gospel. Amen? Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what exactly is the message of the gospel? Like, what should I be holding fast to? Well, let's see what Paul has to say on the subject. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In the United States, postal workers have a motto that says this, Neither rain, nor snow, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Think about it. Postal workers work tirelessly throughout all types of conditions, to make sure that the messages we need get to our mailboxes on time. In other words, delivering our important messages is their top priority. Well, here we see that Paul delivered a message to the Corinthian believers that he considered to be a top priority. In fact, he called it a matter of first importance. Nothing else matters. This is it. This is numero uno. Everything else falls into place after this. And the first part of his three-part gospel message is this. Christ died for our since. Church, over this last week, we've been bombarded by wartime headlines. The reports of violence and terrorism that are coming out of Israel are nothing short of appalling and sickening and deeply saddening. And for obvious reasons, the, the war in the Middle East has the entire world on edge. It has everyone feeling a little uneasy, as it should. However, there is another war taking place that gets far less attention. But its consequences are far more widespread and devastating. You know what that is? It's the war for your soul. And make no mistake about it, the enemy of your soul is formidable. In fact, the enemy has been given many titles in Scripture. He's been called the tempter, the wicked one, 
the accuser, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. However, the most, one of his most telling names, listen, is this, the deceiver of the whole world. You see, Satan is the master of lies. He's so good at it. He's the master at making his ways look better than God's ways. He's the master at luring people into a spiritual ambush by making sin look enticing. And little do these people know that its end is the way to death. And simply put, sin is anything that we say, do, or think that is contrary to God and his ways. And according to scripture, all of us in this room are guilty of sinning against the Lord. And the consequences of our sin follow us everywhere we go, not just in this life, but also to eternity. Why do they follow us? Why can't we shake sin? Man has solved every problem in the world, it seems, you know, except for the common cold. But we've solved a lot of things. And, and, and we've progressed in society, and we're enlightened, right? But, I mean, haven't you noticed society is getting a lot dumber, even though we're enlightened? But that's, that's a sidebar. But anyway, we've solved all these problems in the world, but still, we've been around for 10,000 years, and we still haven't figured out the problem of sin. People still kill each other. War still happens. So we're not that smart, are we? Why does sin follow us around? I'll tell you why. Because sin is within Jesus said in Mark 7, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual morality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Friends, listen closely. The reason why there's war and violence and terrorism and depression and political divisions and racism and prejudice and broken families and justice pain, suicide, any other evil that you can think of can all be traced back to you and me. And the most devastating consequence of our sin is the impact it has on our eternity. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You see, not only is physical death of consequence of sin, why do people die? Well, we die because of sin. But not only is physical death a consequence of sin, the Bible teaches that God is holy and righteous and good. He's perfect, which means he cannot have anything to do with sin. He cannot allow sin into his presence by his very nature. And since all of us are sinners, since all of us are born with this sinful nature, when we die, if left in this sinful state then we're going to be sent to this place of eternal separation from God. A place prepared for the devil and his angels. The Bible calls this place hell. And now I fully recognize that we're living in a day and age when talking about the reality of an eternal hell is controversial and unpopular. But friends, the world is literally falling apart. All around us. And so now is not the time to get cute. Okay? We just got to tell the truth. Sooner or later, every single one of us is going to die. As my dad likes to say, Father, time is undefeated. You're going to die. And at some point, you've got to come face to face with your own mortality. All of us are going to spend eternity somewhere. The question you need to answer is, where am I going to spend mine? You know, there are millions upon millions upon millions of people who are deceived into thinking that they're going to go to heaven when they die. They mistakenly believe that if their good deeds are good enough, they're going to get in. And I used to believe the same thing, same exact thing. That was my camp. That was my tribe. But here's my question. How good is good enough? 
Can somebody give me an answer? How good is good enough? And are, are you willing to wager your entire eternity on your standards of righteousness? Because let me tell you, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. He wants you, listen, church, listen. He wants you to believe that you're good enough to get into heaven on your own. That's what he wants. In fact, that's one of his strategies for spiritually ambushing you. Listen closely. God has his own standards for righteousness. And it's by his standards that we're going to be judged, not our own. What are his standards? James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. You see, God's standard is perfection. Perfection. And there's not one of us here who's lived up to God's perfect standard. It doesn't matter, oh, I go to confession or I pay penance. It doesn't matter how much penance you pay. It doesn't matter how much self-improvement that you do. Because the prophet Isaiah tells us that even our finest efforts are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Pastor Mike, listen, you're freaking me out. Chill, the good news is coming soon, all right? But listen, Pastor Mike, I know I'm not perfect, but I try my best to be a good person and and live a good life. That's got to count for something in God's eyes. Listen, I get it. I I love you, and I get it because I was you, and I believe the same things that you're believing right now if that's what you're questioning. I understand. Here's the problem. God doesn't say that. The Bible says something completely different. The Bible says that God looks at our hearts, and as we've already seen, our, our hearts are the reason why sin exists in the first place. Jeremiah 79 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Friends, the bad news is that our sinful condition creates a spiritual barrier between us and God. And it's a barrier that keeps us from spending eternity in his presence. And in our own power, there's nothing that we can do about it. However, there is something Jesus can do about it. In fact, he's already done it, right? As Paul declared, Christ died for our sins. That was my long explanation of sin, right? But you have to understand the bad to understand. And the good. Listen to me. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God's only begotten Son, was born as a man and he lived a perfect life, sinless life. And then he willingly gave his life on a cross, paying the punishment for your sins and my sins so that we might be saved. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't check out, right? Don't miss this. All of us owe a debt to God that we can never repay. It's like America's debt. We're never repaying that. Just keep on printing money, right? But that doesn't work with God. All of us owe owe, owe, owe to God a debt that we can never repay, and so God paid the debt on our behalf. The sinless Son of God took your sins My sins upon himself. Every evil thought you ever thunk and every evil deed you've ever committed was placed on him as he hung on that cross. Jesus, the perfect son of God, became guilty of your sins and mine. But that's not all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that not only did Jesus take your unrighteousness upon himself, but he offers to give you his 
perfect righteousness in exchange. Jesus offers to empty all the sin out of your spiritual bank accounts and replace it with his perfect righteousness. And for those who accept Christ's offer, for those, uh, God no longer sees their sin. Just like that. Paid in full. He only sees Christ's sinlessness. Can you even imagine? This divine transaction is what enables a person to go to heaven when they die. Now, at this point, you might be asking, okay, I'm tracking with you. I understand. I'm kind of figuring this thing out. But why? Why would God do something like that for me? I'm a wretch. Why would he willingly leave the glories of heaven and humble himself to the point of death on the cross? Why would he willingly take my sins upon himself? He didn't have to. He's God. You ready for this? It's going to blow your mind why he did it for you. He did it because he loves you more than you'll ever, ever know. You see, in the eyes of Christ, your life is worth the sacrifice. You are God's precious creation. Scripture says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in your mother's womb by God. He doesn't want you to perish. You're his creation. He doesn't want you to spend eternity separated from him. He wants, he wants you to be with him forever. And so he made the only way to do so. Tim Keller said this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Somebody, amen. But not only did Jesus die, but just like any funeral, Paul reminds us that following Christ's death, he was buried. You know, many have tried to discount the actual death of Jesus. In fact, many have argued that his burial was just a big hoax, one big hoax. Fake news, if you will. One theory is called the swoon theory. It's a belief that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but he was merely unconscious and when he was laid in, in, in the tomb. And, and then he was somehow resuscitated you know, afterwards. And so responding to this ridiculous claim, theologian J. Vernon McGee said this, Beat a man with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a sphere through his heart. Embalm him. And put him in an airless tomb for three days. And then see what happens. Church, the fact remains. I mean, come on. Like, if you want to argue against Christ dying, like, you got to come up with a better theory than the swoon theory, right? The fact remains that Jesus died and was buried. And this is an important uh, argument that Paul needed to reinforce given his original audience. He needed to dispel some of the skepticism that invaded the church. However, if the story of Jesus ended there, if he remained in the grave, then his death was essentially meaningless, which means his life was essentially meaningless, which means his teachings were meaningless, which means the hope of salvation was meaningless. On the other hand, if Jesus rose from the dead, then all bets are off. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means everything he said and did was true, which means the promise of eternal life is true. And this is why Paul spent the rest of this chapter, we're going to be spending the next few weeks on this chapter, defending the resurrection of Jesus, beginning in verse 4. Paul said he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, we're not really getting into that, uh, that phrase, in accordance with the scriptures today, but he's just talking about how like, the Old Testament predicted all this was going to happen well in advance, which is kind of cool in and of itself. Now, the skeptic might say, well, can you prove that Jesus rose from the grave? 
Like, where's the proof? I want a little bit of evidence. Do you have any convincing evidence? Well, to be quite honest, there's actually a lot of evidence out there uh, that you could find to prove that Jesus rose from the grave. A lot of good stuff out there, but you know what? Paul makes a pretty good case right here. And this is all we really need. Let's see what he says in verses 5 through 8. Then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Church, you know, in a court of law, there are typically three types of witnesses, right? There's the eyewitness, one who's been actually seen the event. There's an expert witness, one who has superior knowledge of the event or the persons that are involved in the event. And then there's the character witness who vouches for the good reputation of the person in question. And when all these witnesses are taken into account and all the evidence is considered, then a verdict is reached. And obviously the more reliable witnesses, the better. But listen to this. Eyewitnesses, by far, carry the most weight. All you need is one and you could be locked up in the slammer forever. Here Paul argues that Christ's resurrection was confirmed not by one or two or three or four or five or half a dozen people, but over 500 eyewitnesses. It's for this reason Charles Spurgeon said this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. Church, there's more to prove that Christ rose from the dead than like there's proof that Julius Caesar was even alive. See, there are so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. And so needless to say, based on the outstanding number of eyewitnesses alone, we can confidently say that Jesus rose from the grave. And his resurrection guarantees that those who believe in Jesus will also rise and live forever. Friends, that is the hope of the gospel. That is what we hold fast to and cling to when the world has fallen apart all around us, that you know what? This all ends with us, with him. Jesus said in John 11, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, you will, you will rise again, just like I did. So church, the gospel is the most important message ever because it has the power to save someone's life for eternity. But that's not all. The gospel also has the power to radically transform someone's life right here, right now. And this leads us to the second, uh, second reality. And we'll look at this one quickly. The gospel changes lives. The gospel saves souls, changes lives. Look at what Paul said in these last few verses. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. How many of you guys could affirm that statement today? Man, like, I, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. You see, before Paul came to faith in Christ, he was an enemy of Christians. In fact, he breathed out murderous threats against them. However, one day on his way to persecute God's people, he encountered Jesus, and everything changed. He went from being an enemy of the church to being an apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, God later used Paul to write over half of the New Testament. 
And therein lies, look at me, church, therein lies both the splendor and the scandal of the gospel. It's splendor and it's scandal. Why? Because the grace of God could take the worst of sinners and make them saints. In fact, Paul wrote in, in 1 Timothy 1, he said, here's a trustworthy saying. Trustworthy meaning you could trust it. It's worthy of trust. You could take this to the bank. That deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and this is Paul talking, of whom I am the worst. Why do you do that? But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Friends, there's a really important lesson to learn here. No one is outside of God's reach. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't even matter if you are literally stuck on rock bottom because you're going to realize that Jesus is the rock at the bottom. And he's willing to forgive you of all your sins and give you the gift of eternal life, and he's willing to change the course of your earthly life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Over the last week, church, we've spent time praying for one of our church members to receive a heart transplant. And on Thursday morning, God answered our prayers and gave him a completely new heart and a second chance at life. Friends, when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, a spiritual transplant takes place. They're not simply refreshed or, or, or rehabilitated or recharged or remodeled or revitalized. They're reborn. They're given a completely new heart. And with this new heart comes the power for a new life, to change your way of living. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that God loves you so much that he is willing to save you exactly where you are today. But he's not willing to leave you where you are. He wants to give you eternal life in heaven, and he wants to change your life, the trajectory of your life here on earth. But you must be willing to receive and believe and hold fast to that message. In fact, I'm going to close by giving you an opportunity to do exactly that. And look, I fully recognize that there's many in this room that have already, already responded to the gospel message. And you just listen to me right now. Do not check out, church. Do not check out if you respond. You know why? Instead of checking out, why don't you pray for maybe someone who's here who hasn't responded? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him or whosoever believes in him, whatever your translation says, should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to me. What you choose to believe about this one verse is the difference between life and death. So if you're here today and you're not really sure kind of where you're at with God, and maybe, maybe what I'm saying is resonating, maybe God is starting to kind of 
draw you to himself. Listen to me. Jesus loves you. And he is willing to save your soul right here, right now. He is willing to forgive you of all of your sins. All of them. Right here, right now. He's willing to give you the free gift of eternal life right here, right now. And he's willing to change the course of your earthly life right here, right now. And listen, friend, your heart may never be as tender to the gospel as it is right here and right now. And so if you want to avoid the spiritual ambush that I talked about earlier, if you want to be sure that you're saved, if you want to start living a new life for Christ, say, I'm done with this trajectory of my life. It's not working. I want something new and liberating and free and purposeful. I want to start living a life now that has meaning and purpose and carry straight into eternity. If that's you, then all you must do right here, right now, is receive Jesus by faith. By faith. It's not working. You don't have to do any works to receive him. You just have to believe. Simply admit that you're a sinner. Repent of your sins, asking God to forgive you. And believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 1.12, this is the verse that that my wife and I were able to use to lead my grandfather to the Lord on his deathbed. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, if you desire to receive Jesus today, then I invite you right now to bow your heads and pray with me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. And I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as my Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me to do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those who are closing with song, I'd like you to come forward now. And for those that are coming forward, listen, if you prayed to receive Jesus this morning, I'm going to ask you to do two things. The first thing I'm going to ask you to do is tell someone that you prayed to receive Jesus this morning. You can tell me. You can tell the person sitting next to you. You can mark it on your connect slip. But don't leave here without telling someone. You know, the light of Jesus is not meant to be hidden under a basket. It's meant to, be, to, sh to shine for all to see. And so if you prayed to receive Jesus, kind of a way just to get you jump-started in your faith is don't hide it. Tell somebody. This isn't a scary thing. This is a beautiful thing. Let us know. Let someone know. That's number one. Number two, I'm going to ask you that at the end of the service, after we're done singing, you can come forward after church if you prayed to receive Jesus. Now, all I want to ask you to do is come forward and just grab a packet of information here. It's a small little packet that has information about our church. It has the Gospel of John. It's got some questions and just has a little uh, note of encouragement from the pastors on what to do next, your next steps in your walk with Jesus. That's it. Tell someone, come forward and grab a packet of information on your way out. Now as one last word, one final word for those of you that know Jesus, which again is presumably most of you in this room. Let's not forget that we have been given a, a critical task. Just like the soldiers that I mentioned earlier, God has tasked us to deliver life's most important message to anyone who is willing to listen before it's too late. Church, I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a prophetic theologian student or whatever. I don't, I'm not going to be able to tell you like, what's happening in the Middle East is fulfilling all this kind of prophecy. All I know is we're one step closer to Jesus coming back today than we were yesterday. And all I know is like, that's where it all kind of goes down. 
So if nothing else, it should cause us to get a little bit busy in telling others about Jesus. Our world is teetering on the edge of destruction. And now more than ever before, we need to get serious about sharing the life-changing message of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so, church, let us leave here today with unashamed confidence in the gospel message. Let us leave here today with unashamed confidence in the one who saved our souls. And let us leave here today with an increased sensitivity towards lost souls who desperately need to hear about Jesus. How about it? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for the life-changing message of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you for saving the souls of so many that are in this room today. Thank you, God, that your gospel message continues to carry power. The same power that it carried 2,000 years ago, it carries today. Lord, may we as your people leave here confident in that message and in the one who saved us. Lord, give us that sensitivity towards the lost. Help us not be apathetic or ignorant. Lord, help us to replace the anxiety and the fear and the anger that we have at the state of our world with passion for your name and telling everyone we can about the answer that you are the way and the truth and the life. Lord, if there is anyone here who needs that spiritual rebirth today, if they have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but today was their day and they prayed that prayer, God, may they be bold to tell someone, may they be bold to come forward after the service, God. May you work in their lives in such a way God, that they don't even recognize themselves in the days to come. Lord, if anyone here came to faith in you this morning, bless them and keep them and prevent the enemy from attacking them. And God, we are so thankful that you work. Not because of us, but in spite of us. And by the grace of God, we are what we are. And all God's people said, Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.